this book is actually you know doing something else it's dancing on the brink of a catastrophe and it's basically asking this question who would we need to be to save ourselves Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast. I am very excited about this episode because you are about to meet potentially my favourite male author ever. Uh, Richard Powers wrote this incredible trunk of a novel, uh, 640 pages of utter bliss. Uh, It's called The Overstory. It's just won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction uh, in 2019 and it was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize last year in 2018. It is hard for me to describe to you how much I love this book and how well it's written. I'm really not somebody for a long, a long read me. I'm more of a 200, 250 pager kind of, kind of reader. Uh, But this book I haven't been able to put down and I've read it twice now. (laughs) Twice! The Overstory follows a plethora of different characters all wandering through the world trying to get through their lives and having these metaphorical trees fall in their path. There's an artist that inherits a hundred years of photographic portraits, all of the same doomed American chestnut. There's a hard partying undergraduate who hears the call of the trees and answers. Uh, A hearing and speech impaired scientist uh, who discovers that trees are communicating with one another, publishes that work and dedicates her life to studying them. There's an Air Force crewman who was in the Vietnam War. He's shot out of the sky and is saved by falling into a tree. And the plot slowly converges together, almost like roots coming up to form one trunk. It goes without saying that it's incredibly poignant subject matter for our times and it's garnered a huge amount of fans and followers from all over the world. Uh, One of them being Margaret Atwood. She said, it is not possible for Richard Powers to write an uninteresting book. Anne Patchett loves it, Robert McFarlane loves it, Tim Winton loves it, I could go on. I really hope you will love it too, but first I want you to meet Richard uh, in person and get to hear his take on his book and how he came up with the ideas inside it. So here is me talking to Richard Powers. Richard, thank you so much for coming in to chat to us. Oh, my great pleasure. Um, I'm sure you've been um, on a whistle-stop tour of questions and interrogations about the book, but (laughs) I hope that you won't mind talking about it uh, again. Um, So, yeah, I just wanted to talk in general about the the structure and the kind of framing of the book. So, so obviously, there's there's normal fiction, there's nature writing, there's there's very serious science non-fiction about trees, and then there's also often a few books that have um, nature as a metaphor or, or right. in the background. But right. I feel like this is one of the first books that I've personally read where nature's been in the foreground and has kind of been the centre of the book. What made you make that choice? And is it a new one? Because <laughs> it's definitely one of the first <clears throat> books that I've read like that, but I was wondering if... You yeah. know, a- as you're speaking, I'm delighted because I did want to extend the range of the traditional literary fiction to take as its subject matter not just the agency and conflicts and crises and drama and potentials of human agents, Mm. but to push it beyond uh, into the realm of the non-human. So I'm delighted that it comes across as a book where nature is not simply an aesthetic extension of of our individual commodity-driven life, mm. you know, not, not just an excursion away from the life that we live, but an urgent, um, active, uh, uh, 
motive-rich uh, uh, world uh, that we need to come back to, and that required telling the story in a slightly different way. You ask whether it's, it, it seems to me like a new kind of fiction. Uh, it is and it isn't. If you measure it against the last uh, century or two of traditional novel, those kinds of books that have emphasized uh, two kinds of crises, uh, internal crises, uh, a person split against themselves, uh, his or herself mm. in, their, in their interior values, or uh, social or inter interpersonal crises of one person's values going to war with another person's values. It does represent an excursion into a third kind of drama, which is human will versus non-human will. And we have not seen a lot of that in, in recent years. However, if you contextualize it against the entire history of storytelling and mm -hmm. myth-making and, and, and human narrative, it's actually a return to the baseline kinds of stories that we told ourselves all the time as we positioned ourselves in the world. This idea that uh, there are other living creatures, enormous, willful, uh, full of surprises, operating on enormous, uh, majestic time frames. Mm. This would have been a given for, for a lot of human stories over the course of millennia. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And, and you've written, is it nine characters? in total that you're taking the perspective of. How can you tell us a little bit about what we might encounter right. in the book of Nine? Well you referenced uh, the structure of the book and uh, mm. this came to me rather late in the in the um, creation of the book. Mm. But I realized that rather than try to tell the story as a straight chronology, jumping mm. back and forth between quite a few protagonists you yeah. know, for, for <laughs> a novel of this uh, of any length. Um, that I ran the risk of losing readers along the way. So instead I decided to uh, tell each of these individual protagonists' backstories separately mm. as if they were indeed short stories. In fact, the unsuspecting reader uh, picking up this book uh, would be forgiven for uh, getting 100 pages in and thinking this is actually an anthology of short stories. Yeah. It's not a novel whatsoever. Um, it takes a while for that section, which I call Roots, mm. to come together yeah. into the next section, which I call Trunk. Yeah. So the history, the, uh, uh, the, the impulses, the, the, the formative dramas of mm. these individual characters seem to be uh, isolated. Mm. They seem to be unconnected, just as uh, when you look at a forest, uh, uh, up until recently, uh, we w all would have been forgiven for thinking that uh, the forest is filled with these individual trees that don't have a lot to do with one another. Uh, but in fact, uh, as we now know about forests with both over-the-air signaling and underground mycorrhizal connections, there are no individuals in a forest. Mm. Uh, there are only n networks and communities. As the case uh, is in the forest, so in my book, these characters who... Uh, begin the story without any sense of one another, come together and uh, shape each other's destinies and, and mm -hmm. uh, join together into a central narrative, um, some more tightly connected to that narrative than others, but, uh, but all of them bound together in this uh, reciprocal, mm -hmm. interdependent community um, of human beings yeah. who... Uh, uh, Belatedly, in some cases, and uh, 
um, perennially in other cases, uh, come to realize how closely their fate is uh, tied to, inextricably tied to, non-human creatures, particularly trees. Yeah, I I loved the the the, the slow like reveal of the different characters' mm. stories, and I kind of felt like it was almost like rings yes. of of yeah. life just kind of slowly building That's building right. your way in. But then, and well, not to give too much away, but ending with the section on seeds was amazing because obviously right. you'd think well, we'll start a book about trees with seeds. But um, um, another thing that people have often, you know, this is like new science talking about this kind of interconnectedness of trees and how they talk to each other and and almost socialists (laughs) living under socialism. Um, Researching the book, did, did you start feeling differently about your country about America because obviously that it's it's driven by capitalism and, and individualism. That's right. Did did you you obviously must have had opinions about that before writing, but did that change as you were writing? My my lament uh, about my country's uh, doubling down on a kind of uh, individualism and a kind of willful human exceptionism exceptionalism did intensify over the course of writing the book. However, since I, uh, my reading took me back uh, into the past, uh, I also came away as I read about all imaginable interactions between humans and non-humans on the North American continent over the course of a couple hundred years. I also came away with a new appreciation for how American history, how rich American history is in the uh, alternative tradition of utopian community, um, uh, agrarian awareness of the of of the land, uh, an intense uh, commitment to long duration time, uh, all of these values that are so hard to see now. Uh, I I did uh, um, want to weave my story around a foundation, a legacy that could be revived, a way of thinking about our place here that is already in the history of the country um, that comes back into the fore in this remarkable time period uh, during the late 90s and early 2000s in, uh, in America, and particularly in the Pacific Northwest, mm. where uh, ordinary Americans who would not themselves ever have considered uh, activism or uh, you know, uh, s- uh, confrontational politics uh, begin to realize that there, there is some legacy, both social and natural that we are in danger of losing and that basically radicalizes these people and turns them uh, into uh, people with a a new cause. Yeah, reluctant activists. Reluctant (laughs) activists, I guess that's a lovely way to put it. Um, I I loved the book and and what, you know, I think it's it's a great... um, uh, kind of flagship for the the argument that long books are important, you know, mm. and it is. I think for some people, they're like, oh, that's a long book. Um, was there any point where you were like wanting to bow to to editing it down, or was the intention to make it this long? And perhaps also what I what I um I've seen a few of your interviews where you talk about uh, our perspective on time, right. <laughs> you know, and being right. that impatient and like wanting to get you know maybe a message across in two hundred pages. Right. <laughs> did did right. that play into this like trees and and length and and attention span? Well. Uh, let me say first that I did edit it down. Okay. <laughs> <Quite a bit>. <laughs> you think it's long as 500 pages. Uh, Director's cut is potentially yes, that's a lot right. longer. Uh, but nevertheless, even even with relentless editing, I, I think I probably took out 
about a third of the total length. So half again what the wow. what the book was, uh, you know, mm. what the book is now, yeah. uh, went away. It is uh, still, however, a sequoia, uh, and there 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 is something to say for uh, having a large pool of protagonists who are so very different mm. coming at this question of taking the non-human seriously from very different angles. And if you are to give them justice and, and deve- develop them in a way that's effectively uh, uh, compelling to the reader, they each need room to breathe. Mm. But I think your other, the, your other point probably uh, is also exceptionally salient. When two of these nine characters find themselves at the top of a redwood that is in danger of being cut and they are now um, as high above the earth as a, as a football pitch is long uh, and they're, they're, they've made, made a home on a nine by nine foot uh, raft at the top of this tree this tree that's as wide as a house and almost as old as Jesus. Mm. I mean, there, something happens to them both in the presence of this creature, which could disappear tomorrow yeah. in a country that's eager to have its short-term payoffs. Uh, but also, uh, in, in confrontation with the calling that is simply that, to, say, to stay put, to mm. prevent this quick, instant, uh, gratification from happening to stay put for how long they don't know how long and the days unfold with a completely different relationship to time and to human consciousness and and the appraisal of who and where and why you are mm-hmm. uh, so as they look out over this primordial landscape and can hear the harvesters in the distance getting closer their connection to processes that are that are infinitely slow, infinitely patient, uh, almost invisible in their long duration, changes them. And I think the way that I tried to do that in the book um, does employ length mm-hmm. and a, 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 a lyrical, leisurely prose, um, simply to say that all stories... Uh, that are crucial to us do not necessarily unfold with that foreground rate and payoff that we expect and want from our own personal stories. Yeah, mm. that's so true. Um, there, there's a kind of focus in the book on the limits of the human ability and mm. human experience. Did, did like thinking about that so much make you doubt yourself when writing the book? And I was wondering, like, which characters... Did you did you find really easy and, and natural to assimilate yourself with and, right. and write about, and which ones might have been harder? Right. I would say, um, let me start with the first part of that question, mm. and then uh, then come yeah, to this course. question of of who I identify with and yeah. who, who unrolled easily. Um, what the book is exploring is this strange way in which we have so deeply assimilated the assumptions of individualist, humanist, commodity culture uh, that we've done so, so deeply and so pervasively that it's hard for us to imagine that there's any alternative. Mm -hmm. 
and, and a shock to remember that m most of human culture has not made that assumption. Um, so the, the, the probing of the limits of, of human capacity to imagine or to identify with the non-human has to be thought of as twofold. I mean, it, the book certainly is about how difficult it is for a person with the cultural assumptions that most of us have to take the non-human seriously and to realize that we are the parasites on an enormous system of production that we simply take for granted and that we assume is just here, yeah. here to feed our <laughs> hunger for resources. Mm -hmm. So uh, on the one hand, the book is about how difficult it is to break out of that. On the other hand, the book is also about this extraordinary thing that life came up with after four and a half billion years of evolution um, called consciousness mm. and how endlessly capable it is to f of, of finding new stories and, and new ways to think about the world. And, and it's that, it's the release of consciousness and the escape from what we humans like to call the real world mm. when we're being tough and pragmatic and assuming that there is no other game in town except the one that we've made. I sincerely believe that we retain our infinite capacity to escape that confine, the confine that we've made for ourselves, and reconnect to this larger place. And I, I believe that we will need to do so in order to keep staying here. Yeah. yeah. Um, if there was um, one thing that you would like people to take away from the book or feel moved to do after reading it, what would it be? Or is that not the place of literature? <laughs> maybe maybe it's, that's not the role of Well, you know, it's um, interesting. A book, um, that, that's a question, too, um, because the, 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 the book does not behave itself the way that a lot of literary fiction does. You know, the, 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 the goal for good psychological fiction is always uh, never to take sides and mm. to show the, uh, the moral and psychological complexity of all positions and you know the, the the heroes have to be flawed and the villains have to be redeemable and the reader has to be richly and wonderfully confused about the moral ambiguity of the, of the world that's not primarily the way that this book operates this book is actually you know, doing something else. It's dancing on the brink of a catastrophe. And it's basically asking this question, who would we need to be to save ourselves? Mm -hmm. um, it's not working out so well now for this 200,000-year-old upstart, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, a, a, as opposed to these 400-million-year-old creatures who have survived, you know, mass extinctions yeah. several times. Uh, th so this, the the... the the, the probing of the book, the, the, the tension, the drama, uh, is precisely this question of how, what, what does it take for a person to see the creatures that they're sharing the world with and to take them seriously, not as ends to, to their private means, but as purposes in and of themselves, sources of meaning in and of themselves. So... Uh, the, the, the short answer to the question of what would the ideal reader response be 
and happily I've gotten this from such lovely places and, and, and so many people uh, who say, I don't see trees in the same way anymore. Yeah. I can't look outside my window and, and, and uh, that, that simple maple that has been sitting there looks different to me now. Mm. You know, that, that to me is the most gratifying response. Simply you know, getting to the final page of the book and saying, I am reading my place here and reading the place of, of others here very, very differently. I'm seeing green in a way that I hadn't before. Yeah, definitely. Um, I sometimes like to give our wonderful bookish listeners uh, a serving suggestion <laughs> with the book. Um, now, I'm guessing that the, set, the best setting to read this book in is in a forest, ideally, near some trees. Um, what would you recommend that people might eat or drink when they're, when they're reading this? We'll, we'll give them yeah. some, some kind of maple syrup-based drink. Right. <laughs> or well, that, I, that, that would be... Uh, that would be lovely, and you know, I, I the book it, it, it itself, researching for the book changed my life. Mm. Uh, Didn't you quite m- move? I you did. moved because you were researching the book. I did. So, so uh, I had been hard at work for for two and a half, three years on the book, uh, and reading about uh, old growth forests and how how profoundly different they are mm. than a regrowth forest. And we can get into this too in a bit, but. Um, I realized that I was under the impression that I knew what an eastern broadleaf forest looked like, and everything that I read kept telling me that, no, I didn't. Mm -hmm. And if I really wanted to see what they looked like before uh, European arrival, that one great place to go would be the Great Smoky Mountains uh, on the border between Tennessee and North Carolina, because uh, the large, it is, it represents the largest virgin forest uh, remnants in, in the, on the continent. Mm. That is the largest uh, eastern uh, broadleaf uh, virgin forest remnants on the continent. Uh, I'm, I went down there on a research trip uh, a little over three years ago, and I walked up into these old growth patches, and it was like going to another planet. I mean, I... I have been in a lot of woods, and I suddenly realized that the woods that I had been in were upstarts and impoverished, and you know, uh, uh, they they in no way gave me a sense of what a tree can do and what a community of trees can do. And it was only uh, when I did see old growth that I was looking out on a world that was that 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 could have been 10,000 years old or, or 100,000 or, or a million years old. Mm. And that, that sense, that profound sense, um, you, it, it, the, an old growth forest looks different, it smells different, mm. it sounds different. Um, and I loved it instantly. And I thought, I haven't felt happier to be alive or more like myself uh, uh, for as long as I can remember. I'm coming back here, and in fact, I ended up uh, moving down there, and I've been living on the outskirts of of the Smokies for uh, uh, the last two and a half years. Mm -hmm. So it literally uh, changed not only where I live, but how I live, what my days are like. That said, I think, uh, you know, I would would hate for a reader to think that they couldn't read this book profitably anywhere on earth. (laughs) That's true, yeah. Partly because... Mm -hmm. There are trees just about everywhere we, you know, we point our gaze, <laughs> yeah. but also because an urban forest 
can be so moving and so rich and mm-hmm. so surprising once you start paying attention. Yeah. That's the goal. Uh, where, whatever, wherever you are when you read the book, whatever uh, food or drink you happen to be enjoying, um, just stay still for a moment mm-hmm. and, and look. The characters that I most loved are probably the ones who are least like me. Uh, which may be fitting in a book about trying to cast your your empathy as far as possible, even into creatures that have almost nothing uh, mm-hmm. in common with, with your own existence. Um, but the, the character Dovla- Douglas Pavlicek, for instance, yeah. um, who is um, uh, a, a, a very um, brash, uh, down-and-dirty, former vet... Uh, largely self-educated, uh, uh, sardonic, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and quite bewildered, quite uh, uh, ingenuous somehow, uh, despite how, how badly life has knocked him around. Very dear to my heart. Uh, I, I just wanted to protect the guy, even as I knew that uh, that was beyond my power to do, uh, and that... Uh, that he had a, a destiny that was uh, that was going to be uh, exceptionally painful and difficult for him to come to terms with. Um, the the character uh, Mimi Ma, uh, a half Chinese, uh, hard as nails pragmatist, uh, who, um, to her own surprise, falls for this this rather goofy guy and gets drawn up into a cause that she, she would never in, in a million years have, have uh, foreseen herself um, uh, committing herself to. Uh, this was based on a, on, a, on a dear friend of mine, and uh, so I felt quite, quite close uh, to her backstory and to, and to her, uh, the, her narrative fate as it unfolded. I guess ostensibly the, the artist, uh, uh, Nicholas Houle, a bit, uh, a bit of an introvert, uh, a bit of a pessimist, um, but uh, a closet romantic idealist may have been closest to me in temperament. Uh, <laughs> and uh, um, to, to, the, the book gives him, in a sense, the last word and uh, the last chance for a kind of persistent optimism in the face of the worst. So he, in a sense, uh, is, is doing inside the book uh, something akin to what I've tried to do with the book as a whole. I think that when I hear from readers, I hear often that um, uh, the character that uh, opened to them most fully and allowed for them uh, to make this uh, harder and, and, and a more demanding identification with the non-human was Patricia Westerford, who... Um, as a as a as a young girl with a with a hearing impediment and consequently a speech impediment, is very isolated from her peers. Uh, she bonds very deeply with her father, who's an agricultural extension agent, who teaches her everything there is to know about plants. And she garners the nickname Plant Patty, and uh, is this kind of outsider figure who. Um, is also a rebel, a, a quiet rebel, 
and discovers things as a graduate student that her profession uh, punishes her for discovering, and she she becomes a kind of pro professional pariah, uh, but is vindicated later when um, subsequent researchers uh, validate her research into the above air communication of trees, and, and then later on the the underground uh, communication between trees through fungal uh, intermediaries. Uh, somehow, that figure, her her reticence, her uh, patience, and her um, her quiet outsider fortitude, I think, uh, uh, was very appealing to me too. Um, you must have read every book on trees there is. Is that, is that what you've been doing for the five years of I research? Am, I am guilty of that charge, um, but it was a great it, it was a great labor of love. I mean, you yeah. know, once once the scales fell from my own eyes, which happened out in California mm -hmm. uh, under the redwoods, um, that's all I wanted to do. I just felt like you know here I was approaching you know my my sixtieth year, and and suddenly realizing how infinitely strange and beautiful and phantasmagoric the world was. And I, I just felt like I had 50-some years to make up for. And I, I, over the course of the research, I, I read easily uh, 120 full-length books on trees. Wow. Uh, and it was, it was just a joy. And I'm mm. still collecting them, still reading them. Yeah. Um, Usually, when I when I finish a book, I'm fairly keen after three, four, five years to move on to another milieu, another topic. Mm -hmm. And this is really the first time that I just want to stay there. I just this want to keep living in that same forest. We expect a yeah. series of tree books <laughs> well, <laughs> coming our know, way because um, you've written so much on music. I suppose this is, you know, right. Well, here's the funny thing. While I was writing this book, uh, friends and and acquaintances would say, "Are you at work on another project?" And I would say, "Yes, I am." It's a book about trees. And I could always see the eyebrow go up and this little you know, moment of perplexity and you know, that, that tightening of the eyes and mouth that says, I hope you know what you're doing. You know? <laughs> and, and there really, you know, really was difficult for you know, even people close to me to think, you know, how, how are you going to write a book uh, on that topic you know, mm. and make it dramatic and make it, make it uh, meaningful? Mm. Um, to me, by the time I finished the book, it was a wonder to me that that every literary novel about where we are and who we are didn't have something about trees or forests in them. I just thought this this ought to be you know this ought to be one Everywhere. of the few very mm -hmm. central topics that preoccupies us. Mm. How to how to get along with the neighbors who have well, been here yeah. so much That's longer the... and who have so much more influence over over the earth, uh, and will probably be here after we yeah, <laughs> we're gone. Yeah. Um, which were your favorite books about trees? Uh, That's what I like. If, if you're going to condense them down, or is that not fair? No, because the the two that I've read that are my favorites is the Hidden Life of Trees. Peter Volley. Yeah, yeah, incredible. And then yeah. have you heard of um, Gossip from the Forest? Yes, by Sarah, Sarah Maitland, Maitland. Yeah. incredible, it and is. that was a mix of fiction and non-fiction. Gorgeous that book, one. yeah, gorgeous yeah. book, which I which I did read about halfway uh, into the creation of the book and mm. took great inspiration and joy from. Mm. Uh, the Bolleben uh, came out in English uh, almost too late, uh, 
to, to influence my book, but I was delighted that he brought together in one place and corroborated so many of the other sources that I had, the primary mm. sources that I had read along the way. Um, and it, it, it definitely is for people who get the bug, or, or uh, it's probably a bad metaphor. A gateway, <laughs> a gateway <laughs> drug. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, yeah. To, to go to, 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 to get yeah. a sense of what the new forestry uh, has come across, these startling mm. discoveries about the social nature uh, yeah. uh, of trees uh, in, in that have been made over the last few decades. It is a great single volume to go to, and very accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking for a book in the older naturalist tradition, one uh, written at a time when uh, it wasn't embarrassing and it was still uh, desirable uh, um, to combine science with lyricism. I really like um, uh, the Na- A Natural History of North American Trees by Donald Culross Peaty. Mm. Um, he was at one time one of the most uh, widely read naturalists in the States. Uh, he's not uh, widely read now. Uh, he's hardly known now. But uh, the book is this marvelous uh, breath of, of um, intense, uh, inspiring, uh, close-looking at trees. And he's, uh, each section is devoted to a species. And his writing gives a personality and a flavor and a, and a lyricism uh, to each of these species that uh, just makes them, mm-hmm. I, I would say, come alive, but they were very much alive even before <laughs> any human bothered to look at them. But mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a gorgeous book. Do you have any advice to people who are aspiring writers? Because you, your perspective on writing must have changed. You know, you've had so much success that now you know that when you write, people will read what you're you're writing. Right. And, and you know, um, but starting out, is there anything that you'd say to people? Because there's a lot of people who listen who I know want to write as well as yes. um, avidly read. Yes. <laughs> they often come hand in hand. What would you say you wish you'd known? Or I, I, I would say, look outwards. Mm-hmm. While we are infinitely fascinating to ourselves, we need to tell more stories about how dependent we are on all of those protagonists that don't always make it into our stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting, you know, the, we talked earlier about um, dramatic conflict and how uh, that can be internal and psychological, can be uh, uh, between people and, and sociological or political. Uh, for a long time, our literature has ignored that third kind of conflict between the goal, the goals of our species, and the goals of all other life. And it's it, we 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 ignored it because we were under the mistaken belief that somehow that drama was over, <laughs> that we'd won that battle and, mm-hmm. and we, that we were the, uh, the, the last one standing. If you were a young writer now and you wanted to say, as, as literary writers do, uh, something about where, what dramas confront us, and what the world looks like now, you can't walk away from the fact that that drama, the drama between 
people and the rest of the non-human world is coming back with a vengeance, mm. right? And as we live through these years now, the first years of a profoundly changed Earth, and we begin to realize how completely wrong our assumptions were about what we could take for granted and what we can't take for granted, of course our literary fiction is going to have to come back to those, to those crises and make them part of the human story and bring the human story back into the, into the non-human story. Uh, so that's what I would say. Uh, tell, tell a bigger tale, one, one about how hard it has been for us to live here and what it might take uh, to start us on our way of doing so. I think that's a brilliant note to end on. That's, that's incredible. Thank you so much for oh, talking to us, Richard. Thank you so much for listening to The Vintage Podcast. That was Richard Powers talking about the overstory. If you read one long book this year, make it this book. I promise you the 640 pages don't feel like enough. It's also out in paperback now, so you can get a nice copy to carry around with you on the bus or on the tube or however you move about your day with a book. And it's also available in an ebook, so you have no excuse, really. Uh, if you do read the book, do let us know at Vintage Books on Twitter and Instagram. We are always there, ready for your questions, feedback, uh, comments. We always love hearing what you thought of the books that we publish. Do subscribe to this podcast if you want to hear more interviews like this one. And if you enjoyed it, do pass it on. Tell a friend. Everyone loves hearing about a new podcast, I feel. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I've been Lena Norms, and until next time.